Um, we're in John chapter 2, so if you can go ahead and turn there. And we're uh, launching off into a controversial subject this morning. I've avoided it for uh, two and a half years since Antioch's been around, um, just because controversy is uh, scary stuff, right? I don't like hate mail, things like that. Um, so I wore a sweater today so that you would just think of me like Mr. Rogers. Um, <laughs> I'm not the bad guy this morning, uh, but we're going we're gonna to launch into a, a, a talk on alcohol, and uh, the, the main purpose this morning is not about wine or about alcohol, um, it's about legalism, and I want to be very clear about that, okay? and so um, the value of this conversation is to show one thing, and that's that, that we should be balanced and in the middle on things, rather than on extremes where we're legalistic, okay? It is our job to go after people, to, to reach them, to connect with them, to nurture them, okay? And leave up to God the pruning. It's not our job to prune, okay? If we prune, what we create is little bonsai trees. It's not our calling, it's not our job. As the church, our mission is salt and as light is to go in and to transform, to reach in a positive way, to nurture, to try and bring life. And God will take care of the pruning. And when he prunes, things grow. When we prune, things just stay all ruined. <laughs> if you're a Karate Kid fan, sorry. I know bonsai trees were good in that movie. All right, so John chapter 2. Let's launch into this. This is what it says. It says... Uh, on the third day, a wedding took place in, at Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. It was a little bit of a travel, and they were probably close friends with whoever was getting married, and they were there. When, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Okay, You don't really care what goes on at a wedding unless you're close to what's happening at the wedding. Tamara and I got married, and then uh, we had a great florist that did it out of her home. And a friend of ours, Jolene, was getting married, and she asked us, and we said, oh, you've got to use this florist. She's just absolutely great. Um, so we showed up at the wedding like 10 minutes before the wedding's supposed to start, and everything was chaos, and we're like, ah, what's going on? Well, the florist didn't show. You know, and we're like, really? What, what, what happened? And, well, yeah, the florist didn't show. They got painted carnations from down the street some floor shop, and the pictures are all thrown off. Everything's chaos. And they've got pa you know, painted carnations, right, for their wedding. And we're like, wow, really? You know, and inside we know that we recommended the florist. So we're like panicked, you know, like she's going to hate us for life. And so the closer you are to what's going on at a wedding, the more you care deeply. If you're just randomly connected, you're not paying attention to details. Jesus' mom is probably connected in a close way to what's going on at this wedding to where she feels... Uh, the, the stress of the fact that wine has run out. And so she says they have no more wine, and Jesus replies, Dear woman, and woman here is not like derogatory. It's like my lady here. It's odd that he would say it to his mom, um, but it's, it's also kind of like a more of a respectful kind of ma'am kind of thing. But he says, Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Interesting thing going on here is Jesus is perfectly matching what happens in 2 Kings chapter 3 where Elisha the prophet gets called in because there's no water 
And these kings that have gone out are saying, hey, there's no water, let's call on the man of God. And the man of God comes in and says, what do I have to do with this? And they use the exact same words here Jesus does. And um, he ends up doing it, Elisha does, by this kind of statement. He says, because of my respect for you, King Jehoshaphat, I'll do this. And so Jesus kind of following that prophetic model here, it's kind of implicit, he doesn't say it, but he ends up doing the miracle, and kind of what's implied is, what does this have to do with me? It's not my concern, but out of respect for you, then I'm going to do this, just like Elisha did. So nearby, his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you, and nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. They're not clay jars like you'd see in most artwork. These are stone jars. The word here is stone. It's, it's what would have been uh, used for ceremonial things. Clay would have made that water impure, not ceremonially uh, clean. And so these are probably hollowed out kind of big stone uh, jars or pots or basins that would have been towards the entrance of a home where, we, where you would have used it to, to cleanse yourself ceremonially so that going into the house you would have been kind of ritually pure. So these are, these are big stone basins, jars, whatever you want to call it. And there they are, and they hold from 20 to 30 gallons each. And Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. Don't just get some water and put it in there. Don't whatever. He says, fill it up. Fill all six of those with water. And so they filled them to the brim all the way to the top. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. Um, most translations would say after they've drunk too much. Okay? But you have saved the best wine till now. Anyone that uh, had a different life before you were a Christian and hung around bars, you understand this principle. I mean, I, I watched it in the fraternity. You know, it's a Coor, uh, it's Coors Light after you're drinking Coronas. Right? I mean, you go in and you drink the best stuff first when it matters, and then afterwards it's cheap Bush Light. Um, Paps, Blue Ribbon, you know, it's, it's the, the worst stuff later because it doesn't matter at that point, right? So there's something really odd going on here. Just the natural conventions have kind of been turned over and all of a sudden there's the better stuff after this, this festival has probably gone on for a while, maybe even a day or two, and the best wine comes out and he's like, wow, it's a really great party. What's going on here? And this was the first of his, Jesus' miraculous signs. Jesus performed at Canaan Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Why was he reluctant, probably, when his mom said, Hey, um, Jesus, you need to do something here? Because it revealed his glory. The clock started right then. Jesus was unmasked. He was um, public all of a sudden, at that point in time, drawing attention. So the clock from that point till the time he died, his hour 
when his hour would fully come, it began right there. And Jesus knew that full well. His mom was just focused on the problem. Okay? There's a problem here. I'm panicked. I don't know what to do. Jesus, fix it. It's interesting. There's a parallel here to how we pray, isn't it? Um, half the problems that we face in our life are probably opportunities that God brings. But we look at them and we panic and we see the problem and, and we start to pray to God with this sense of urgency. God, 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 you've got to do something. And what's interesting is God doesn't just fix our problem usually. He sees it as an opportunity and finds the win-win. So Jesus doesn't just make some wine to solve his mother's problem. What he does is he creates probably 180 gallons of wine, more than any wedding party could ever drink. Uh, and he sets himself up in this prophetic model where his first miracle um, parallels another first miracle. Moses' first miracle was turning uh, a river of water into blood, and it's, it symbolized judgment. Jesus' first miracle is turning water into wine, which in a sense shows his grace because the wine is the new covenant. It's the covenant of grace. And he does it in these ceremonial um, basins, these stone jars, because that's the old covenant, and it's the law, and it's the ritual, and it's the ceremony. So Jesus sees not just the problem, he sees the opportunity to declare who he is with this miracle. And he finds a win-win. It's, it's a fascinating thing. And I think the way we pray, like we, we should realize that. God's not going to just answer the problem He's going to find something where his glory is revealed in our life and in the situation. It's a fascinating thing there. But um, what I want to do this morning is kind of segue into this controversial topic because I think we just have to deal with it, and that's the topic of wine. We need to trace out and understand what does the Bible say about alcohol? What does the Bible say about wine? 180 gallons of wine is a, a hard thing to swallow if alcohol is evil. Jesus just created a lot of it. Okay? Um, so here you go. I want to I wanna start by saying, um, looking at two verses, because um, the prophets had characterized the Messianic age, the age when God would send the Deliverer, or the Messiah, as an age when wine would flow. And there's another parallel to what Jesus does in his miracle. But look at what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah says this, They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord. The grain, the new wine, and the oil, the young of the flocks and herds, they will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Which kind of looks ahead to Revelation 7 and 21, where it talks about no more tears and no more sorrow. Then maidens will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will tur turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. Uh, Isaiah says this, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine the best of meats, and the finest of wines. The creation of alcohol was always viewed as a blessing from God to make the hearts of men and women merry that could be abused and turn into sin. And when 
God talks about this wonderful age where everything ought to be merry and happy and delightful and joyous, where we're rejoicing in what God is doing. He talks about that, and he brings in this idea of wine, because that's the symbol. And so Jesus makes a lot of wine. Now, the view for a while, a long time, specifically in America, has been a prohibitionist view of alcohol. I found this book this week um, in the library at Kilns College, and it's, it's just, <laughs> anyways, doesn't that just look like a scary book? That's not an argument. That's just a comment. Um, but the view in that book is, is that um, Jesus created grape juice, a lot of it. And he created it because there was nothing left to drink at the wedding. Um, and, and they needed something to drink because it was going to last multiple days. Well, what about the water that was turned into wine? I mean, they had something to drink. The, the point was, at a festival, if you didn't have what was expected, the wine that went with the celebration, there was going to be shame on that family. Jesus didn't just create a drink because people were going to be thirsty. He helped guarantee that this, this wedding would be successful. Anyone that's ever known somebody close to him that's gone through a wedding, I mean, everything has to be perfect. The pictures, the details, because it's, it's that day, it's that celebration, and it all has to be perfect. Jesus didn't just create grape juice. It's an interesting thing. If, if grape juice is is only what it was in the Old Testament. The word wine, all oh, that just means grape juice. The Bible wouldn't actually create a fermented drink. Well, then why are there all these verses about um, prohibitions on getting drunk? You don't get drunk off of grape juice. There's over 70 prohibitions in the Bible against getting drunk. And you don't get drunk off of grape juice. You get drunk off of wine. Certainly there was um, strong prohibitions against kings drinking wine. Um, they were supposed to be sound judgment up above everybody else and, and avoid wine. And it reminds me of uh, the story um, when Nancy Astor said to Winston Churchill, he was drunk at a state function, and she was just so disgusted with him. She said, if I was your wife, I'd put poison in your coffee. And Winston Churchill replied, said, if you were my wife, I'd drink it, you know. Um, and... Um, certainly there's times when, when it's prohibited. The Bible talks about that, like I said, 70 times. But what it's prohibiting against is wine, alcohol. Uh, other arguments against their, the wine in the Bible being actually wine, which, by the way, is just what it becomes when you crush grapes, okay, um, is that it was diluted. It was cut down by water so much that it, we can treat it like grape juice. Now, the interesting thing is that practice didn't come about until Alexander the Great conquered kind of the Palestine area and all that, because the Greeks used to cut their wine down with water, seawater in particular, right? Sounds gross. And so he brought that practice around, but it probably this idea of cutting down wine um, didn't happen until after Alexander the Great. So before that in, in Palestine, Israel, the wine they would use for the Passover meal, the wine they would use in the celebrations, the wine that they would use as the, the pouring it out as an offering in the temple would have been wine, just straight wine. So it's just an interesting thing. Besides, diluted wine really is still wine. 
it's still got alcohol. It's, you can get the most diluted thing and people could still get drunk off it, you know? Like the cheapest light beer, you're going to see guys drinking 12 of them. They're going to get drunk if they want to. I mean, I, I remember when I was in uh, high school, we went to Canada and, <laughs> shouldn't be sharing this, um, went to Canada and, and um, we bought this kid uh, a, a six-pack of non-alcoholic beers, a joke. And he drank those things, and we had to, like, carry him back to his room. He was so sloppy drunk. So I've believed in placebos ever since then. I mean, so even non-alcoholic beer, if, if you're in the right mindset, can get you drunk, is my point. But so diluting it down, it, it's, still, it's still wine, just diluted down. Actually, the argument about wine being diluted down just proves the point about what Jesus did at the wedding. Just imagine um, cutting down Coke, three parts water and one part Coke. I mean, just imagine what that would taste like. And then if I hand you the real thing, good Coke, what would it taste like to you? So the, the whole cutting down, watering down wine argument just shows in some sense that what Jesus did with this miracle was give them the good stuff. You know, here's their drinking water down diluted wine possibly, and then Jesus comes and gives them good wine. It wouldn't have been diluted. No one would drink diluted Coke and say, wow, that's good. Okay, it just actually proves the point. Um, some common, uh, the commonness of wine in the Bible, I just want to show that this was a cultural norm. They just didn't ask the same questions we did about, why is there wine at this party? These must not be good Christians. They, they didn't ask those kinds of questions. It was just so common, the Jewish mindset, that this was a gift from God to make life more joyous, but that overindulgence was a sin, just like food and gluttony, just like money, and if you went too far with it. Okay? This was the cultural mindset. The Hebrew uh, scriptures, like I said, prescribed this for the festivals and for the offering and for even the Passover. So when Jesus takes the cup at the Passover and says, now this, what he was taking was a cup of wine saying, now this is going to represent my blood, the new covenant. Jesus' wineskins analogy, he says, my teaching, the new covenant, is like wine that's put in new wineskins. And wineskins was partially tanned goat skins. And they would sew up where the legs and the tail had been and leave kind of the neck open. And they would pour in wine. And as that wine would ferment, it would, it would expand the wineskin. That, that was how they used it to travel and just different things like that, okay? An old wineskin that was brittle as grape juice, crushed grapes fermented into wine, it would crack and it wouldn't hold that wine. And Jesus says, my teaching can't be held by people that are, are dry and brittle and, and are going to crack. I've got these disciples and these young people and these needy people, and they're able to hear and get excited about what I have to say, this new covenant, this new wine. Jesus uses just a common analogy. It'd be like talking about Starbucks. You know, it's like when you go in for a latte and you put it in, if you ask for four shots, you know, I mean, it's using a common thing from that day and age to make an illustration. If alcohol or wine was so evil, then Jesus would have just picked a different analogy. He's a smart guy. He could have found a different one. It's just a common experience that he had with all of them. Um, there's a lot more. Um, I'll just give you a couple. A lot more arguments in terms of just the common cultural value of wine. Paul gets mad because the Corinthian church, which you know they were always kind of weird, 
um, the Corinthian church, they were doing like the Lord's Supper. Okay, we're going to celebrate Jesus. Here's the Lord's Supper, but not everyone gets there at the same time. If you go to Africa, where they're kind of on an African clock and they're not like as punctual as us, it's wild. People can trickle in at all different times, you know. And this is a little bit what it would have been like in those day and ages. Not everyone's going to show up right at, you know, 6 o'clock or right at 3 o'clock, whatever it is. And so people were drinking before other people were getting there, and they're actually getting drunk in, in, on the, the wine that they were going to use for the Lord's Supper. And Paul's like, what are you doing? You just so don't get this, you know. Um, don't get drunk and wait for everyone to get there because it's supposed to be a fellowship thing. If it was grape juice, Paul certainly couldn't have said to them, you know, don't drink that wine and get drunk. Basically, the argument here is, is, um, is pretty simple. It's, I don't have a big pen, but... Boy, it's going to take forever to get that. All right, I'll just do it short. Prima facie is, a, um, is a, both a legal and a philosophical type of argument, which means literally in Latin, first face or on first glance. When you look at something and it's just common sense obvious, um, it's, it's a prima facie argument. Okay? So when you look at the scriptures, if someone were to just pick it up and they live on a desert island and they flip through it, they would just get the sense, oh yeah, these people had wine that was made from fermented grapes, and if they drank too much of it, they would get drunk. That's a bad thing. Um, if they didn't drink too much of it, it's something that goes along with festivals and, and joyous celebrations and makes the, the heart of man merry, and that's just what it is at first glance. That's just what it is. Now if you stop and back up and say, but I've got a pre-commitment that alcohol is evil, if I have that pre-commitment, then I'm going to go back and try and twist the data to make it fit my worldview. Does that make sense? Now, we're going to get to it in a little bit, but that's what we've done in America for the last hundred years. We've gone back and twisted it afterwards to try and fit our worldview. Um, some common verses on wine in the Bible, we'll just read these off just to give you a little bit of a sampling of that, how it's connected with God's plan. It says this, But the vine said to them in Judges 9.13, Shall I leave my new wine, which cheers God and men, and go to wave over the trees? Next verse, Psalm 4.7, You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. Ecclesiastes 9.7 says, Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. Ecclesiastes also says, A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes life merry. Psalm 104.14, The Lord makes plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. God makes it. See, there's something going on beneath the surface here where we don't get it. The, the Jewish philosophical worldview was that what God creates is good and it can be abused by man. God created wine, therefore it's good because what God creates is good. Now it's up to wisdom or folly of men or women to determine how they're going to use this thing that God creates, whether it's going to be glorifying to God or it's going to be sinful and not glorifying to God. The Jewish mindset is what God creates is good. Now, the, the Greek mindset um, is dualistic. And the Greek philosophical worldview is that spirit is good 
and matter, the things of this earth matter, is inherently evil. That's why they believed, a lot of them, um, the Docetic heresy, that Jesus didn't really take on flesh. He kind of just floated here in spirit form because it would have been a category fallacy for him to take on flesh. It would have been to put on something sinful, and Jesus couldn't have done that and still been pure. So the Greek idea is that there's this dualism, and it's extremes. Over here is spirit, and it's good. Over here is matter, the physical stuff, and it's inherently evil. And so the early church fathers actually had to write guys and say, hey, you can't use water when you're celebrating the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. It's, it's a dualistic worldview that says you, you, sh you can't use wine in the Eucharist and you're going to use water instead. You're buying into this idea, a philosophy, that matter is inherently evil and spirit is only good. And actually the church fathers argued against that and said, no, you've got to use wine. It's really interesting. So we have this dualistic view. I could read you quotes from the 1900s where people, heads of organizations, in front of denominations and at conventions, would say this poison alcohol, which is evil in itself. Okay, that was the view going into prohibition, coming out of prohibition, and I guarantee you if, if you're a Christian and have an extensive Christian network, someone in your network has that view that it is inherently evil. Evil in itself. So how can we have anything to do with it and not sin? It's not about excess. It's about touching it is evil because this thing is evil in itself. And, and the same thing gets done to a lot of other things. Money becomes evil in itself. Not what Paul says, the love of money is the root of all evils. See, the Jewish mindset again, the excess of God's good things becomes a bad thing. And we, we've slid over to a different worldview. Now, like why, why are we, we got a lot more to cover, but why are we doing this this morning? I mean, I've got four daughters. I don't want them to grow up to be drunks. I don't want them to marry guys that are drunks. I don't want them to get into cars while they're drunk or with somebody else that's drunk. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not doing this so that everyone will just go drink. Okay? That's not the purpose of talking about this. The purpose in talking about this is that legalism cuts at the very root of what our call is as Christians. Because we can't go into a world and connect with the world and be normal and be authentic and be real and say things that obviously are not in harmony with Scripture. What are people going to think of us? I mean, we all know this. What, what do people think of Christians? You're hypocritical. You're always against everything. It doesn't make sense because you, you get on these, like, these high horse like preaching things, but I don't even see that that's in your scriptures. It's confusing to me. And you're just miserable people. You don't know how to be merry. I mean, our face, our connection point with reality, with people in this world, is really strange and awkward and different than the way Jesus connected with people. Jesus walks into real life. I mean, this is a wedding. This is real people. And they've got a real problem. And he finds a way to say, you know what? I'm going to promote my mission and my calling at the same time as I just love on you and help you out with real life. Because I'm, I'm just a real person. 
and I deal with people, not insiders and outsiders, or good people and bad people, or those that drink and don't drink. I'm just dealing with people. And people are needy and they're sheep, and I'm just going to love on you and accomplish both these purposes. Now, there's a way for us to be against drunkenness and still be for people and connect with them. Why am I talking about this? Because if we walk like a Pharisee, talk like a Pharisee, um, look like a Pharisee, I was going to say something I shouldn't say right there. I'm just going to insert a well-known Christian pastor that I think typifies legalism. <laughs> um, but if we walk like a Pharisee, talk like a Pharisee, um, look like a Pharisee, um, then we're probably legalistic. We're probably pharisaical. We're probably engaging in what's very human and trying to manipulate and control and not what Jesus came to do where he says, look, you love on people, you nurture people, you, you reason with them, you educate them so that they can use wisdom, you work with them. But you don't try and manipulate and control them because nothing grows in that environment. Bonsai trees. Why are we talking about this? It matters because it, it, if we're legalistic, it affects everything we do. Jesus came to bring an age of grace where... There's not levels of righteousness where I'm better than you and I'm going to get to this next level and then I can condemn all the other Christians because none of you are as good as me. We look at whatever we do that's good and say, you know what, it's not good enough. I want to take Jesus Christ's righteousness and that's the thing I'm going to cling to that makes me good. Right? Christ's righteousness is the one I get to grab by grace. So I have no room to judge anybody else. And if I take my own righteousness and think, look at the levels of purity I've reached and no one else is as cool as me, okay, that means I've chosen my own works over Jesus Christ's free will, grace offering to me. All right, let's continue. Um, we talked about the commonness of wine in the Bible. I want to just talk a little bit about the commonness of wine in church history. I talked about the church fathers. Um, we could belabor that, but I don't think we're going to have time for it. Um, early church was, again, it's a thing created by God that can be abused. Going into the Middle Ages, it's really fascinating. Wine was actually preserved by the church. When the Roman Empire disintegrated, it was bad for the wine business, right? And the people that actually maintained it and took it further were the priests and the monks and the church because they poured themselves into this because it was necessary for the Eucharist. And so actually wine was preserved, even beer, throughout the Middle Ages by the church folk. Don Perignon was a Benedictine monk. It's kind of funny, huh? Um, Don Perignon was a Benedictine monk. So it's fascinating, the, the Middle Ages is this time where the church, in some sense, becomes the guardian of alcohol production. Going into the Reformation, surely the Reformation, those people that cared about the glory of God, would correct that fallacy, right? No. Um, the Protestant reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, they all strongly supported this idea of enjoyment of wine as a biblical blessing. Okay? Calvin's salary included seven big um, caskets of wine. His annual salary for John Calvin, okay? any Calvinists out there, okay? um, included seven big caskets of wine. For the purpose of, he shouldn't have to pay out of his own pocket when all these people from the church are going to come over to his house and he has to entertain them as a good host. Our pastor shouldn't have to do that, so we're going to include in his salary these caskets of wine. 
I haven't quite asked the elders for that yet, okay? Um, <laughs> Luther's wife was known for making good beer. When I was at the Reformation Museum in Wittenberg, Germany, um, it's funny, you can actually see Luther's beer mug. His book, Table Talk, is a, a collection of writings by his students of conversations they had around the dinner table after the food had passed when they were all drinking beer. And there wasn't anything weird about it. It was cultural. Luther, uh, or uh, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien um, were a part of a literary group called the Inklings. And for about a dozen years, they met in a pub called uh, the Eagle and Child, the Bird and the Baby pub. And they would meet around pints and talk theology. Luther, or, uh, Lewis actually uses beer in the Chronicles of Narnia as an analogy. I mean, how strange does that sound? It's not strange to him because it, it was a part, it's a part of culture. It's just this thing. And so he uses beer as an analogy in the Chronicles of Narnia, this little kid's book. And to him it wasn't strange. It was just using an analogy like Jesus talking about the wineskins and new wine. So how did we get to where we're at? Where if half the Christians in Central Oregon were here this morning, they would call me heretic and ride me out on rails. Seriously. I had two emails that were forwarded to me yesterday. Uh, that didn't have anything to do with Antioch Church, just people in our church that are dealing with difficulties and things like that. Two emails forwarded to me yesterday that involved legalism, and I got so angry that I emailed one of my mentors who's a pastor of probably the most conservative church historically in America. And I said, I just got to vent. And he came back with a letter this long, and he vented even more. And uh, about the alcohol thing, I told him I was talking about alcohol, and he says, no, it's fascinating to me. And this is what he said. He says, it's amazing that we Christians who believe in Scripture, we literalists, will go through hermeneutic gymnastics, like changing what Scripture actually says, to preserve our circle the wagons cultural values. And then he finished his email with, God save me from my myopia. Um, how did we get here? So I want to real quickly, oh, we've got time. Sweet. I panicked all week. This is like a two-hour sermon that I've been trying to cram. Um, we've got time. This is going to be fun. Okay. So I want to, how did we get here in America? Because this is largely a unique American thing. Little bits of the Nordic countries, a little bit of England during the whole prohibition thing, like we're affected by this. But this is largely an American thing. How did we get here? So I've got a little timeline. I'll walk through it and we can just kind of talk through how did this come to be our dominant worldview in American Protestant Christianity. So here's uh, the timeline Pilgrims set sail, the Pilgrims on their voyage set sail with 7,560 gallons of alcohol. Their comment when they reached Plymouth Rock was, the victuals were running short and we were all out of beer. Okay? Those are the pilgrims that came to America. Um, by 1810, the annual absolute alcohol consumption, including wine, beer, etc., may have been as high as eight gallons per person. A level over four times the current rate. Now here's the interesting thing, we're going to get to it later. But there was a whole program of educating um, people in America, late 1800s, early 1900s, the, the strategy was we're going to educate the young about how alcohol is evil. Okay? It's a form of creating a worldview in generations. Does that make sense? 
And part of what was used in creating this worldview, the education, was the idea that the reason we're against this now, but in the Bible it talks about it, was they didn't have, like, whiskey back then. And they didn't, ha they didn't, they didn't drink as much back then. And so there was kind of this argument of, well, pff, things have gotten so much worse now than they used to be. That's why we should just say we should just get rid of the whole lot of it. Now, the interesting thing was they, they started having distilled alcohols by the late Middle Ages. Been around for a long time, okay? Um, that's, that's not a valid argument that, that distilled alcohol came about, like, somehow in the 1800s. It's been around since the late Middle Ages. It's also a bad argument to say that consumption had, had never been that high, that it was just getting higher in the late 1800s. That's also a fallacy. Just putting that in there. Um, next thing. What happened, now this is the first kind of wave of change. Okay, there had been some movements here and there of, of abstention from alcohol. A doctor, Benjamin Rush, had talked about how distilled alcohol was bad for the health, and that was the first time anybody had ever read like a medical thing that this is not necessarily good for the body. And so there had been like pockets of, of movement about, hey, we should probably not drink alcohol. But the first big wave of it comes from the Second Great Awakening, which is kind of into the 1800s. Now, the Second Great Awakening, Wesley and, and these kinds of guys, birth of Methodism, um, really focused on personal holiness. The, the whole idea in the Second Great Awakening is this huge idea of, of individual spirituality. There's some good things that came with that, some really bad things that came with that. Um, if you go back to Scripture, you, you see household baptisms and you see just big kind of group things happening all throughout the Old Testament and then again in the New Testament. And the idea was the covenants were always kind of communal things. Your house was treated as a unit. Your clan may be treated as a unit. The whole nation of Israel treated as a unit. And there's this emphasis on the collective community of God's people. We're all part of a body. We're not just our own little individual kind of people this way. And one of the, the bad things about the Second Great Awakening is this idea of community kind of gets lopped off and people begin to view themselves just me and God. That's what matters, me and God. And there's a lot of pride that comes from that and then a lack of balance. And so with this comes kind of a rush more towards we've got to get rid of anything that would compromise our purity and make it bad because personal holiness, individual personal holiness, becomes a big deal. Um, the next big wave is this, uh, 1873, the Women's Christian Temperance Union. The single greatest um, effect on later prohibition in America was, was the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Um, they were the ones that began going in with hatchets into saloons, in, um, <laughs> which is a real funny picture to me. Here's Jesus saying, go get some 30-gallon tubs, I'm going to make wine. And then you got these picture of women <laughs> going in with hatchets, right? It's just an interesting contrast. But they began, and their, I, the motives of these women were amazingly pure. Amazingly pure. Uh, what you're going to find out is the, the temperance union here, the whole goal wasn't just prohibition. It was also humanitarian causes. They were a part of the women's suffrage movement, which was saying that, that women are being treated horribly, and we need to have some basic rights because we're made in the image of God, and there's dignity there. Okay? It's funny... <laughs> The, the American Beer Makers Association actually supported the anti-women's suffrage movement, like lobbied against women's rights. 
And it's one of the reasons why these women got so fired up against alcohol's evil. Look at how they're fighting us on basic human rights for women. It's a fascinating story. Um, but so they, they become this movement, this huge movement in America, um, and go to the forefront, and it's tied, again, with women's suffrage. Um, let's look at the next slide. Uh, Charles Welch finds, uh, founds Welch's Grape Juice Company. That's his dad, Thomas Welch. They were dentists. And he basically, Thomas Welch invented it. His son started the company. But it was a way to pasteurize grape juice to stop the fermentation process. So now all of a sudden, there's a replacement symbol that you can use with the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or whatever um, that's not alcohol. And so it, it just adds fuel to this whole thing because now it's not just, we're, you know, the wine is the thing in the Lord's Supper. What do we do? It's like, ah, oh, it's, it's the fruit of the vine. We don't have to deal with alcohol at all. It should be grape juice. And so you can actually read the, the uh, Women's Temperance Union and, and addresses they gave in front of um, whole conventions about how they demanded that the grape juice be used. Grape juice was a huge hit. I mean, it was like presidential candidates like being spokesman for it, you know, it being introduced at World's Fairs and things like that. And grape juice was a big deal when it came out. But so that, again, like pushes it. It gives a way for it to go. Um, real quickly on that. Um, the, the strategy of the Women's Temperance Union was education. Okay, it was, um, it was education. We have to reach the young and convince them that alcohol is the reason why we have so many societal ills. Poverty, um, unemployment, um, and most of the human rights violations going on at the time. So prohibition with these women was actually seen as a human rights movement. And you're like, what? Um, what happened was with a large bunch of immigration coming over and with the urbanization of America and stuff like that, you had a lot of spouse abuse and child abuse. Uh, Irish got a really bad rap for it. Um, were had this, this sense that they were big culprits in drinking too much and then abusing their families. Now, if you're Irish, don't send me an email. I think I'm like 116th Irish or something, so it's cool. Um, but the idea was these women are like, look at what's happening because of alcohol. Prostitution, these women that were going into these saloons, they were looking at it and saying alcohol and prostitution are going hand in hand. Now, here's the fascinating thing, okay? Think of all the Westerns you've ever seen. I mean, just think of all the Westerns you've ever seen. Whenever there is a prostitute in a Western movie, here's the interesting thing. They always look very happy. Does that ever seem, seem strange to you? I'm serious about this. Has that ever seemed strange to you? Like, you know, maybe these women didn't really want to do that. Maybe it wasn't as happy as their smiles made it look. And, and the truth is, it's a horrible thing with these kinds of conditions 100 years ago, women were being forced. There were slaves in this thing. There was, it was just a horrible thing. So you've got this women's temperance movement that's really focused on human rights, okay? Women's rights and children's rights. Body and they didn't understand. Make a difference. We've got to aim at alcohol because this is where it's coming from. Because you've got to understand that. The whole thing against alcohol was a means John chapter 11. to an end. Biggest the end. Took, uh, we'll go to the next slide. It took World War I to really kick this thing over the edge. Um, 18th Amendment proposed on December 18th, 1917. Um, next slide. It takes effect. Prohibition takes effect January 16th, 
1920 and goes for 13 years. But World War I really pushed us over the edge, and why? It's really fascinating. Because um, the, the anti-German sentiment that came from World War I was enough to kind of push this, this just growing movement of prohibition over the edge because all the major beer makers were of German descent. Bush, Schlitz, um, the guy uh, Jacob Best that did uh, Pabst. I mean, these were all German families, German beer companies. And so kind of this anti-German sentiment gives the extra little oomph to tip the, tip the whole thing over. And so America goes dry um, starting on 1920. Uh, that goes for 13 years. In uh, 1933, President Roosevelt presiding, um, 21st Amendment repeals the Volstead Act. Volstead Act was slang for the 18th Amendment. Um, and he repeals it on December 5th, 1933. Now here's the interesting thing. So legally, in our country, alcohol was prohibited. Now you've got all this education going on in the church, all this training that alcohol is evil, and all these other evils are to blame because of alcohol. Training in young kids, training in churches, all this other stuff. So when the government now says, we're not going to make it officially illegal, what do you think the church does coming out of that? It says you might not make it illegal at a national level, but at a societal level with social norms, we'll make it prohibited. So basically what it looks like is, hey, the government says you can buy it, sure, that's fine, but no one who's really filled with the Holy Spirit of Christ would ever touch alcohol. If you take a drink, if you buy alcohol, if you have wine in your house, you cannot be a good Christian. So what happens now is a means to an end. Alcohol, it'd be good if we got rid of it because it would help us create this society that would be so much better. The means to the end became a what? An end in itself. Alcohol is just evil. That's legalism. The Pharisees of Jesus' day had taken laws and rules that were meant to bring harmony to our relationship with God and fellow men, okay? Um, harmony, righteousness, so that everything would fit together. These rules were a means to an end. And by Jesus' day, they had made the rules or the laws an end in themselves. If you don't follow these the way we say you should follow them, then you are not a true believer. And we can look down on you, we can judge you, we can abuse you in some sense. We can, we're absolved of our responsibility to love you because look at what refuse you are. And it became legalism. That's what happened in America. Um, it's trickling out in some sense. Bend is much more European than, than most places in America. But that legalism associated with alcohol was huge, huge, huge in America and still is. And what we learned from it is we never take something and call it evil as an end in itself and then use that as a barometer for how we're going to treat or distreat people. We don't do that. It's not our calling as the church. We're part of the new covenant that brings grace and says we meet people as people and we try and love on them and we try and nurture them and we try and grow them and we leave it up to Jesus and to God to prune where he sees fit. But we focus on the ends 
not the means. And alcohol, like food, like sex, like money, like other things that God created that we can go to an extreme and then dub evil, it's not that. It's something in the middle that we can either through wisdom utilize well or through folly utilize poorly. And the idea here is education. I went to Biola. It's really fascinating. I supposedly signed a... Um, a disclaimer in going to seminary that I wouldn't have any alcohol while I was there. It took me four months to realize I'd done it because I don't read fine print ever, um, which is a really bad thing in my life. And I had no idea that at a Christian college, like, you'd have to sign something that said you could never touch alcohol. What? I was coming from Clemson, crazy background, new Christian. Just no idea that this kind of thing existed. And you sign on the doctrinal statement, do you believe in the Holy Scriptures? And you sign, yes. And then number two, will you abstain from alcohol? What does that have to do with Scripture? That's our own cultural controls. And we put it there right with Scripture. And when we are not in harmony with Scripture, the world looks at us and they're like, you're not authentic. I can't go with you on this. The thing that also happens is you've got all these students at a Christian college that aren't being trained by anybody. There's no mentor. There's, there's no older person or professor that's speaking into their life and saying, look, here's this thing that if abused is really bad. Here's how you grow in wisdom to deal with this thing rightly. Instead, it's just prohibited. So you get a bunch of kids not growing and then half the kids sneaking around. It's not a good system. It doesn't nurture the development of the human soul. It doesn't grow wisdom. Our system ought to say, Things that God made are neutral. How we use them determines things. And the best thing that can happen to my four daughters is that I help them become wise so that they don't abuse alcohol or anything else that when taken to an extreme is bad. If I just slap a lot of prohibitions on them and don't ever nurture the growth of their wisdom, I've short-circuited the process by by which they're going to be able to be the right kind of Christians through the whole of their life. That whole Biola experience was fascinating to me. Um, let me just wrap it up by saying this. Jesus turned water into wine. It wasn't grape juice. Jesus turned water into wine. And at a prophetic level, he changed the symbol of purity from an external, self-oriented one and ritualistic to an internal and grace-based, God-glorifying one. He changed the symbol from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. The American church for a long time has reversed what Jesus did and put symbolically the water and external purity back into the jars and at the forefront. We have been legalistic. If you walk like a Pharisee, talk like a Pharisee, look like a Pharisee, Now, at a human level, Jesus overwhelmingly helped this couple out. And he made their wedding feast the best that it possibly could be. Because Jesus met people where they were at. Um, man, he was so much more authentic than we make him out to be. I mean, you watch Jesus. He didn't follow these scripts. Or I mean, the guy just rolled up on people and was real. And it was always true. I mean, under our logo, we've got truth, beauty, meaning, adventure. It was truth. And if we try and go beyond Scripture and create our own truths, we just mess up the whole truth thing, and the whole beauty, meaning, and adventure never falls out of it because we're locked in a legalistic structure or paradigm. 
Jesus was truth, and he was real, and he was authentic, and he was grace-based. So at a human level, Jesus overwhelmingly meets these people where it's at. John 10.10 says, I came that they may have life and have life to the full. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have life to the full. Now we've hyper-spiritualized that verse for a long time, but I think it's clear from Jesus' life that it's just not some ethereal spiritual realm that he's talking about with fullness of life. But it's also an everyday Real life matters as well. That Jesus, that God cares about our life and our relationships. Let's pray. Father, I do pray for wisdom for us as a congregation. That we wouldn't abuse alcohol or anything else. That we would care enough about your glory and our reputations, realizing that the way people see us is going to reflect on you. And that we'd care about those things enough to be smart about these things, to raise up our sons and daughters to be smart about these things too. I just pray that we would be a light, that we would be salt, that we would be a transformative element in all of Central Oregon. That we would bring life and life to the full, not just by preaching at people, but by loving them and meeting them where they're at. I pray that we wouldn't get so caught up in external purity that we're always going around evaluating and judging and manipulating and controlling and going beyond what your scriptures say and different things. That's just not where we're supposed to be, Father. I pray that you would make this church a missional, loving, grace-based, driven, focused, zealous church to go reach people and through our love, just transform them so that they might know you and the grace that you so freely and richly provide through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, keep us from legalism. It's, it's this cancer that Paul talks about that can get into a church and absolutely destroy it. I just pray that you would fill us with the humility, realizing that none of us are perfect and we all need your grace and we're all equal at the foot of the cross. Fill us with that humility that allows us to be authentic. I just pray that in Christ's name.